0: The perception of the Cardinals locally is that they will stop short of making that final step from contender to favorite.
1: Yes, totally agree. Totally agree. It's so frustrating to me as somebody who's not a Cardinals fan, but who watches it and sees like, hey, we've got this pretty good collection of talent. Like, I just want them to make that one more move to push them forward, right? Like, they they just always feel like they're one short in one spot. And I want them to make that move really badly. They should be the behemoth in that division right now. Hello, everybody, and
0: welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Joined this week. Thrilled to have him. He's freshly back... Tanned? Should I say tanned? Are you tanned?
1: Well, I mean, I'm always a little bit tanned because I live in Arizona, so like oh, I'm out point. in the sun even in the winter. So yeah, I've always got a little bronze to me. All
0: right. Well, there. You, okay. So that probably gives away the secret. It's, it's MLB Network Radio host extraordinaire. I told you I was going to say that, mm. Mike Farron. No,
1: I don't. I think extraordinaire is selling it a little bit uh, too hard. I would say it's just like all the people yourself. in the channel. I'm one of them.
0: I think. I think you're underselling yourself. <laughs> I, I have a great time when I'm a guest on your show, so I think you're extraordinary. I have a great time listening to your show, so I'm going with Extraordinaire. Well, you also you also host a college baseball program on ESPNU Radio, which, uh, which unfortunately will be, give you plenty of baseball to talk about at that level, not so much at the major league level, um, which leads me to my first question that I want to, I, I, I'm, I've prepped this for you, Mike. I'm very excited to ask you about it um, because people ask me it all the time. And that's, you know, they ask, what do I do in the winter when there's no baseball? I want you to tell us what you do. What What do you do when all winter when there's no baseball?
1: What's the old line from the Raja? I sit out the window and wait for spring. No, I, I mean, this has actually been challenging um, with no transactions during the winter because normally that's a good chunk of what we're doing. But um, in a weird way, when the world shut down in March of 2020, it kind of prepared us for this. So at least on our show, we've spent a good chunk of time, about an hour uh, a day when Jim Duquette, who's who's my regular co-host, and I have been together – auditing organizations basically going from top to bottom. So we would spend a half hour going through the pitchers and position players. And then we break down one player in particular and then kind of, Put them together in the rankings, and it's all you know. Just like any, like if you're looking at prospect lists or anything, it's a snapshot in time, right? So uh, the good news for us is that that this snapshot has been frozen for a long period. Uh, now the bad news is that we're starting to run out of teams, so I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen after that. I think we have three left, so or four left. So, um, so yeah, so we're getting close to the end of that. But we also have been doing stuff on the channel. Obviously, the Hall of Fame took a, a good chunk of time, yeah. and we're kind of going back. Back through, We're doing, um, you know, this week we're doing a We Love the 90s week where we're talking about, you know, games and players and stars of the 90s. And I guess next week will be the 2000s. And so there are things we're doing to try and stay engaged. And really, I think, you know, college baseball, listen, I'm a big college baseball fan anyway. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to host this show in six years And I'm really excited to be back doing it. Um, I'm working with Mike Rooney, who is, um, I I like to call him the secondary face of college baseball behind Kyle (laughs) Peterson for ESPN. Um, And Runes is one of my really, really good friends. And um, he's just a college baseball junkie. And, you know, games count starting February 18th for that. So, I mean, we're getting close to opening day for college baseball. College softball actually opens this weekend, which is the big TV sport between the two. Um, And so, like, yeah, there's stick and ball sports that are going to get going here. And I'm excited to talk about games that matter. And I will, because I think more than anything, we're baseball fans. And I actually kind of look at this as a great opportunity for college baseball to get a little bit of exposure while um, the lockout continues. Before
0: diving into the lockout conversation, I do want to ask you one college baseball question, mm-hmm. if that's all right. Yeah. what? Where's the level of talent and competitive, I guess, sharpness in college baseball now a full year removed from the pandemic? And what that did as far as a cascade of talent
1: that remained in college because it was a shortened draft? It's pretty good um i would say so this year at the college level the big thing is it is loaded with bats that wasn't the case last mm. year last year was more college arms uh, yeah. This college class is loaded with bats. There are a lot of really, really good ones, and guys that are going to go at the top of the board. And I think when you start to look at the teams that are picking at the top of the draft, as much as people are excited about the, this trio of um, you know high school bats that are there in uh, Drew yeah. Jones, who's Andrew Jones' uh, son, and, um, and the, the ter, um, gosh, I'm blinking on his name, uh, Terrell Johnson, the left-handed hitter who's like, if you watch video of him, it's pretty cool. Like he's really really... really good. And Elijah green, who's, you know, the son of a former NFL uh, lineman and um, a really talented player. Like those teams are going to take the guys that have proven college track records. And so there's a ton of that. That said, the pitching is down a little bit, at least in terms of um, draft eligible players, um, and when you've got a couple of guys who are towards the top of that list or towards top of those rate rankings, like Peyton Paulette would have been at, at, Arkansas or kind of pre-lip at Alabama, you know, those guys had had surgery. That's going to cost them the year. And, and even guys like Blade Tidwell at Tennessee is going to be slow dope in the year. So it's a lot thinner on that side, but there are a ton of young guys that are coming through because I think the other part of, um, you know, what happened was, so like, for those who don't follow college baseball, basically anybody who played, who had their season canceled, what, 12 games in in 2020, was yeah. able to keep their eligibility. Normally there's a 35 – scholar, the, well, there's 11.7 scholarships in college baseball, but there's a 35-player roster limit. The NCAA gave relief to these teams to be able to allow them basically to keep everybody on scholarship And the way the transfer portal no, now works. Guys have moved around quite a bit but the five round draft in 2020 probably helped the college talent more than anything for 2021 oh, and kidding. for 2022 because yep. in addition to having guys go back to school that normally would have been you know picked in that you know 6 to 40 range in a regular draft year, you also saw a lot of more prep guys that would have gone that were in that kind of, usually I would say that 11 to 15 round where, you know, you might be able to save a little in the first part to overpay a guy towards that, that middle part of the draft. And so there's still a ton of talent that's at the college ranks, and I, I'm really fired up for this season because of
0: that's, I, I'm I'm excited to see what that has done for some teams that aren't always powerhouses, right? Like, but if they mm-hmm. had the right group, the right group of pitchers, Or, you know, even just like the difference of having a Saturday pitcher stick around or a Sunday pitcher stick around, what that could do for some programs that maybe – Aren't able to contend year after year after year. So I, I I just always wondered about that, like what it did for the competitive balance of
1: the game. Oh yeah, well I mean I think I think college baseball is a little bit different than some of the other majors. Certainly it's different than football in that. Sure. The the mid majors or the small schools you know, have a better chance. I mean in 2016, Coastal Carolina won the national championship, right? right. Like you look at teams that are ranked in the top, you know. 25 right now. And it's places like East Carolina and, uh, you know, Dallas Baptist, which is the pride of the Valley. I mean, they're, they're really the best most consistent program in the Missouri Valley conference. And um, you know, there's always a a ton of big West teams, but, but Irvine and and Long Beach in particular are, are really strong. And I think in a lot of respects, as much as the big 10 is part of the power five and they have improved significantly in baseball, the, over the last, you know, 10 years in particular, the the fifth best conference most years i would say is either the american or or it's the big west and so those aren't necessarily the biggest schools and so yeah um so like that's a fun part of it too is that there's a lot of different ways to get there and big west baseball is like it's very much a throwback. You know, it's a lot of, you know, it's, you're practicing bunt defenses and um, you know, there's a lot of of stolen bases and there's, you know, a lot of off speed pitching, a lot of pitching backwards. And um, you know, maybe you've got one guy that's a bopper in, in the lineup, but it's a really fun brand and they tend to pick up the ball too. And I, so I'm a big fan of the big West just in general.
0: We are having this conversation. I warned you with the Tottenham game on the background and it's tied now, just so. oh, okay. and in case well, you're interested. Prepared. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be prepared. It's tied now. So I warned you about that, that that would be on in the background, but also that gives us kind of a, a, a time fix to give everybody because we're on the eve of likely the formal announcement that spring training is going to be delayed. It's inevitable. We probably felt that way all along. Um, I would say that coming out of the world series, we all felt that it was unlikely for spring training to open as scheduled around Valentine's Day with pitchers and catchers. Um, that said, how pessimistic to load the question here? How pessimistic are you that the regular season will start on time at this point?
1: Um, I I don't know. I, I just, has it changed? I, um, has your yeah, feeling changed? Um, I was, you know, I'm a I'm an eternal optimist, so I was hopeful that once things got down to brass tacks that we'd be moving more quickly through this, but that clearly hasn't been the case. So, yeah. um, you know, I think anytime revenues start getting put into jeopardy revenues or, or paychecks that it tends to create a deadline. Right. So, yeah. um, I, am I more pessimistic than I was? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, you know, you're starting to get to the point where you, you worry a little bit about it because, the team, the two sides just haven't spent that much time at the bargaining table. You know, the owners, um, the commissioner said that, that he locked the that they locked the players out to speed up the bargaining process and if that's the case imagine how much slower it would have been going if this is actually right fast as supposed to be um but it just doesn't seem like there's any sense of urgency and it it just kind of sucks so and 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 i should clarify that it, it really doesn't seem like the sense of urgency is there on ownership's part you know i mean that's that's where things kind of lie and I get it from their standpoint. They don't want to give up too much. They've won the last two negotiations pretty handily. And, you know, if you were in the same position, you might be going, well, why do I have to give anything back? It's been working pretty good for me, but that's why we have contracts that expire and that's where we get, you know, that's where leverage comes into play. And so, you know, all of those things are still, you know, part of the discussion. I'm still hopeful that, that we'll get something done um, that won't jeopardize opening day and that will get us you know the bulk of spring training games, but it's hard to be to think that my glass is half full at this point.
0: It's interesting that you bring that up, and I don't think we can talk about it enough that they said the lockout was to spur negotiations. Or, and it's a, it's a good way to frame it because it wasn't the lockout can't possibly have meant to spur action on the field because otherwise they wouldn't have had a lockout. They dropped the lockout. everybody goes to spring training next week likely under the same CBA rules that expired, but then the players have the leverage because they could strike or not show up or anything like that. They imposed the lockout to limit the players' leverage right, and take the strike off the table. Um, if they wanted movement, if they wanted baseball activity, they could drop the lockout and everybody would go to spring training next week. It's just not going to happen. So the, the positioning at the time saying that the lockout was to spur negotiations And then to wait 40 plus days before they began, um, you know, that 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 was a very odd optic. And it does set the stage that the owners are willing to wait. And I don't know if, you know, for for a lot of us and tell me if you agree with this, for a lot of us, we kind of saw the 2020 as galvanizing for the union. And in talking with players, they kind of described the same thing that like they really felt like they came together as a group as they, as they fought for what they wanted in that shortened season, as they really tried to prioritize some of the health and safety protocols that they felt that really brought them together as a group and maybe steal, well, not maybe definitely stealed them for what was ahead. I wonder if maybe it also showed the owners that they can survive if they wait a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I think even that galvanizing force happened a little bit before the 2020 lockout. I think it was the reaction to to the, um, if you're looking for like one one kind of tipping point, it was the reaction to the Astro scandal that I think really you oh interesting to see some unification from the players and at least publicly in what they were saying. But I agree. Can you elaborate
0: think, on that? Why 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 do you? I mean, because that did in some ways pit 29 rosters against
1: one. Yeah, I mean, I think why, it's, why was that galvanized? I think it was more that more like um, you know everybody against a handful of players, right? Like it wasn't even one whole roster. I'd say it was probably right like 12 guys. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's I think just the fact that they found their voice. Right. So they mm. were so, so strident about um, the the reactions to the punishment and to what happened and how it played out. Um, and then everything that happened in the aftermath, you know, the the commissioner um made a major public relations misstep in referring to the world series uh, trophy as a piece of metal. Right. And so all of a sudden that makes it seem like, well, he's disrespecting us and here's another way to do it. And so, um, you know, you get a lot of alpha males that get bowed up as a result of that. And so, um, I think that that was probably part of it. I mean, some of this had been bubbling under for a, a number of years because of, of, you know, basically from the moment the last CBA was, um, (laughs) <laughs> Arrive where the only thing that really changed for the players was they got like extra seats on the bus and didn't have to tip the clubbies, <laughs> like, or didn't have right. money to tip the clubbies, right? Like, or walking around cash, like th- those kind of things, I think, you know, probably started this a little bit just in are like, wait a second, we should probably pay closer to at- attention to what's going on. But I think that's kind of what started it. And then you have the, the restart issues going into 2020 as well. Um, that that really helped to, to drive them even closer together. So I think all of those things are factors in it. I mean, you're right in the sense that like the lockout doesn't need to exist the way my understanding of collective bargaining, which again is, is limited as a radio talk show host, but um, uh-huh. I feel like I can, I can speak on this in the expertise is that, that if once a CBA expires, you basically work under the, the same rules of the CBA and, it, until you reach a new agreement. Now, it does Correct. put you at risk for a strike. The one thing I would add that's a little bit different is that that there's a specific sunset date in the CBA, at least that's my understanding, um, for what the collect- competitive balance tax is. So Correct. I think, yep. and maybe this, is, maybe this is a little <laughs> bit cynical, but I, I would think that the legal reasons why they felt the need to impose a lockout immediately had as much to do with not having an uncapped year you know what i mean like that's kind of like okay we're going to try and protect ourselves some and i'm sure that even if that that's not the main reason that had to fal- factor into the calculus for it so absolutely you know, all you of those things, up. I yeah. think, are, are are part of what we are. And we do have, the, like, there is precedence for a commissioner ending a lockout. I think it was 74 mm-hmm. there was a lockout and Bowie Kuhn ended and <laughs> sent everybody to spring training, which really ticked off all the owners. I don't see Rob Manfred doing the same thing, but there are histories of lockouts being ended by the commissioner before there is an agreement that's reached. You're uh, Yeah.
0: I mean, to give kind of historical perspective on it, the, you know, the 94, 95 players strike the 94 season started with the previous CBA being Mm -hmm. applied. So that's why it became a strike just to kind of give fans an example. And the
1: 95 season when it started was under those same rules, remember, because what what had happened in those 200 some odd days from the time that the players struck, the the owners tried to implement basically a new agreement and a new set of rules and Mm -hmm. the players association took it to the national labor relations board which said that that they had not uh, bargained in good faith. And so Correct. they overturned it and basically forced them to take players back. This was part of what they had replacement players and all of this. And of course, the, the, it's fairly famous that the the head of the or the the um, arbiter in that is now on the Supreme Court. It's a justice. Right. Sotomayor, the judge who so, went.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who they took it in front of in New York. Yeah. So that and, and that's an important point for people to understand, too, is an um, the owners declared an impasse and it's one right. of those words that i'm sure like you uh, you know i'm very careful to never use right in the coverage because it has such a legally charged definition if if an if ownership declares an impasse they are saying that they cannot arrive at a deal and that gives them the power to unilaterally implement which is what you just described their their mm-hmm. their own agreement um and kind of compel it upon the sport um that's their legal right now what led to it is the union said, whoa, 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 how could you declare an impasse when we're still talking? Um, this went through the mediator. This has, it, this this does have ripple effects even today where some of their reluctance or all of their reluctance to go in front of the mediator that was offered by the owners relates back to this because they did go to a mediator. They did agree to do that. And it it's what led to the cancellation of the world series. It did not help things. And then that brought about the impasse. Then that brought about the court case. Then that brought about, you know, players breaking the, the, the line to go to spring training, a few players. Um, All those things are in play here, but that's why like when you'll see like a headline that says union and owners at an impasse, it's like, well, no, they're not. When you see that word, that means trouble. And that was a huge bat signal for trouble. I'm um, back in ninety four, ninety
1: five. Yeah. I, I think impasse and quarter pole are the two terms that get thrown around willy nilly that don't mean what they do. A quarter of the way into the season is not the quarter pole. The quarter pole Correct. is the last quarter mile of a horse race. Not it's that the last I would quarter of a couple season. of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would not put money on a horse race. Of course.
0: What's the vibe that you get from fans you hear from, from listeners to your radio show, um, it's, you know, are they pro owner, pro player? Are they pro nothing? Are they frustrated? Do you think that even if baseball is back, say within a month, there's going to be a lingering bruise here? Um, do, do you sense, um, some seething frustration here or, or worse, do you sense apathy that baseball won't come back from? Um, at least think- frustration, they care.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think frustration is the right. I mean, I'm frustrated, aren't you? I mean, like, this, this is like what we do for a living, right? And, you know, I spent six years working for a team, too, and watching what happened in 2020 with, uh, you know, across the sport with people being furloughed and terminated, you know, during during the height of the COVID pandemic, yeah. was and seeing salaries cut, you know, kind of across the board, and for some teams, you know, cut for the first part, at least the first part of 2021, um you know that that really sucked like that that was no fun to watch happen and the last thing i want to do is see that happen again and i'm not talking about for you know like the the executives the high end executives your general managers team presidents all that they're going to survive they're going to be just fine but like when you're talking about you know people who are, are seasonal workers you know like who are the 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 fine people that take the tickets in the the seats at at Busch Stadium like th- those those mm-hmm. are the people that you know, I worry about or those kids that are recently out of school who are the easy ones who to, um, you know, to to cast aside in some sort of furlough where they don't get paid for a a couple of months, potentially. I mean, those are those are people that I really worry about in this because we've just witnessed it happening two years ago. So um, it's it's a little bit frustrating from that standpoint, at least for me, from fan standpoint, I think they're frustrated because they see um, they have not seen much in terms of conversation or negotiation, you know, and I think that's the part that's frustrating. I think that there is a little bit, and this is may generalize too much, but I do think that there is a little bit of a generational divide on what um, sides people tend to come down huh. on, you know, if yeah. you have to see sides. I think fans that are probably, like, we're probably right at that cutoff, right, in the, the 45 to 50 range. Uh, the Those who are a little bit older than us, I think, tend to still side more with ownership, while those beneath us in age tend to side more with the players. And I think, you know, some of that is born of of when your fandom came about, right? Like there's so many, like, I mean, it's you're what, two years, three years older than I am. So like, are you 48? Is that right? No, no, but, uh, but thanks. Well, 49. So you're just a couple <laughs> years older than I am. We're, we're about the same. I'm 45. So I'm 46. Oh, I thought you were older than me. She's just so much wiser.
0: No, I, I get that a lot. In fact, you know what? Like very few, just, this is way, but like, Trent, our friends, our friends, C. Trent Rose who's the same age as us, who's the same age as us, likes to bring out how much older I am than him. It's a few months. So we're on MLB now talking about the Hall of Fame ballot, and he brings up the fact that, like, he goes, well, someone much older and wiser than me, Derek, said, and I'm like, on live television, I'm like, wow, man, how do I come back from that? And (laughs) But it, it but it, it, it's. I asked, a, I asked another writer one point in time here recently. I said, "How did I go from being one of the youngest guys around to one of the oldest guys around in fifteen minutes? <laughs> like I never got to be the middle-aged writer. I just what? went from like being, hey, it's a young guy, man, wow, you know, you don't know anything, you're too young to be, wow, you're young on a major league beat. How, how, how'd you get here so fast? To all of a sudden, man, you've been around forever, man, you must be really old." it's fascinating what's happened you know well i don't it's because all the the old guys retired yeah maybe (laughs) there's a lot of a lot lot of young writers now on the beat where it's a lot different than our generation where it was a destination beat um you know and you worked your career toward it as opposed to you know now rope it into your career as you move on to you know, as far from my perspective, you move on to TV or you move on to a national writer right. or you move on to a different kind of takeout kind of role. Where, whereas when I was coming out of college, you know, it was a destination beat. You know, right. you mentioned the Supreme Court thing. I mean, that's I looked around when I was in college. And I was like, I'll never be a baseball writer because these, you know, the baseball writers are like Supreme Court justices.
1: Right. <laughs> and then my
0: timing is just off. What am I going to do? Am I going to go to Denver? Nope. Jack, you know, Jack Ecken and Tracy Ringlesby are there. Am I going to go to St. Louis? Nope. Rick Hummel's there. Am I going to go right. to Kansas City? Nope. Bob Dutton and Dick Cagle are there. Where am I going to go to cover baseball? I just assumed I wouldn't. So it's very funny that warp speed, that now I'm older, and very few people can, like, peg my age. I think that's because I look 70. <laughs> I have the hairline. I'm also some 30. Of 80, but you but also, also look 30.
1: Like, you right, look very young, Right, but I young, also too.
0: look, but, but I wear young, young glasses, and so people go, well, someone with Harry Potter glasses can't be that old.
1: <laughs> well, you're more. So we're, we're in the same era more than anything. We are. And I think, we are. That's I think, a long
0: way of saying that we collected the same baseball cards. So we, we,
1: yeah, we, so like, like, like I've got the 84 tops like sheet on my wall. So like we're, mm. we're, we're of that age when free agency was just kind of coming into its own. And like I have the
0: 84 baseball preview from the national lampoon on my wall.
1: Oh, Nice. I love that. That's I'm great. Proud of that. That's yeah. really cool.
0: Um, I but, also but, have a standing. I have one of those old marker, or I'm sorry, magnet boards, right? That mm-hmm. kept the standings on. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I have one of those, and it has the old logos. So it's from, it's from the '94 season. And wow. so, can you guess where it's frozen in time? It's oh, it's on my wall right now.
1: It is uh, Frozen a in Time. The cardinals were <laughs>
0: 53 and 61. The Expos <laughs> were 74 and 40. Does that close the gap for you? Yeah,
1: it does. It was a uh, uh, the day of the strike, 1994, Frozen yeah. in Time. I'm yeah. sorry.
0: This yeah, and then I have the updated magnets for the Devil Rays and Diamondbacks that I got later.
1: <laughs> 1998. Yeah. So, but so. But I think all of this has to do with. I mean, it's it's like when free agency came about, right? right so right, like right. we when we when we were growing up, when free agency track, was still uh, just trying to get us on it because I don't have as much cool stuff in my office. I've got a a, <laughs> pa- a digital painting of Dick Allen smoking a cigarette and, and juggling, which I really that's love, amazing. But, Is that an NFT? No, it's not. It's actual. Uh, it's an actual. Um, uh, Print that a a friend of mine did. She has uh, put together. Oh, you may remember. Do you remember Carly Todd, who used to work with the Rays? Yeah. So she she now is the director of baseball operations for the University of Texas, and she has done a whole thing of of digital prints of um, baseball players smoking. So like she's got all these kind of like famous photos of like Jim Leland and uh, Keith Hernandez and like all all these guys like just having a rip right. And she's turned them into these did this digital art, and so. I have that very famous SI cover of, you know, Dick Allen wearing his white socks, yeah. red pinstripes and juggling and like the aviator specs and like the cigarette dangling out of his mouth. I mean, Dick Allen was the coolest anyway. So like, and he predates us really like in a, I mean, his career, you know, mm-hmm. ended right, right when we were bored, but he just like, to me, he personifies cool. So I have that one. Up. But he also was like, he didn't really get to achieve free agency, true free agency, you know, so it's not that far detached from when we started covering the game. And so our parents and, and people we were around as we were breaking into the business viewed free agency, I think a lot differently than younger fans do now, whereas it's been part of the game, it's helped to build competitiveness in different spots. And, and it also has, you know, allowed people to be fans of players that, and the, the, the access nationally to more games, more highlights, more Mm -hmm. conversation has allowed people to follow players like they would internationally in football in a manner that they didn't maybe in the generations before. And so I think that that's where some of the, it's not a clean division for sure, but I think that's That's part of the dividing line is that, you know, in, in, I'm sure that there are a lot of Cardinal, I mean, I know there's the, that 90% of the, or 95% of the people that are listening would call themselves Cardinals fans on this podcast. But I think, I would think the younger ones are probably like, yeah, but I still, you know, paid a little bit of attention to the angels with pools there. Now, not everyone, certainly. And I'm sure I'll hear from one who was like, oh, I didn't care. Once he left, he did, it's dirty, but that's fine. But like, there's a, I think a better understanding of where it comes, uh, of what, what's happening with, you know, free agency. And I think there's this, this little bit of a divide in the, the, you know, that the tired. Argument of billionaires versus millionaires. And I know you were talking about that in your chat this week, and it's just not, you know, like e- even if you were to take away the dollar figures from it, like most of us work for somebody else. And so we understand how hard it is to get a right. raise or to negotiate a new salary or whatnot. And that's in a lot of respects what the players are doing. And so maybe there's a little bit more public empathy for it than there was certainly 25 years ago when it, almost all of the coverage and reaction was based around well these players are greedy they're the ones who went out on strike they should be mm. glad they should be fortunate to play the game it does feel like it has swung a little bit in the balance um, from where it was in
0: 9495. I, I like that point a lot i, I I've talked to folks about how owners kind of give off an air of permanence you know like uh-huh. they're here committed to the team the way the fans are. Um, you know or or a way is siding with the owner is siding with the laundry because that player may be here today and gone tomorrow, and how could they and they just don't share that same passion as a as a yeah. fan does a commitment to the team and I don't think that's fair, but I understand where that's coming from where you see the owner it's part of why people go, why won't the owner do more to try to win a world series why doesn't he want to win a world series or you know as much as I do um it I think that same kind of question come or comes from the same area of where they're like, well, the, you know, the owners are going to stay.
1: Right. Right. And like, listen, I think, I do think that one of the things that um, that Bud Selig did that was largely successful was trying to push for local ownership as much as possible, you know, like, um, you know, and, and I think that's that's one of the things that helps to tie them to tie owners to their, their, um, their owners or tie the fans to their owners and their teams is that that helps and that you get the feeling that, you know, like Bill DeWitt was born in St. Louis and I know he bounced around a lot, but um I think that that's, you know, I think there's probably a better connection there. If you were going to take over from the Bush family um, right. in ownership, than than it would have been if you'd brought in, you know, and, and you know, Frank McCourt, which obviously didn't work as well in Los Angeles. So, so like wherever you can to be able to have that ownership d- does add to that feeling that the owners are in it for, the long haul. But but they're also very insulated and not everyone is quite as at least in my perception, is quite as available as like say the DeWitts are, who, you know, Bill DeWitt you know, a few times a year will stop to talk, right? And and that's not the case with every owner Now compared to maybe where it was 30 or 40 years ago, where uh, they couldn't wait to tell you what they think. And that's, I think that's the things that's been kind of crazy about this owner's meetings as I was waiting. I was like, okay, who's going to be the one that breaks ranks. Who's going to say something cool that we can talk about on the radio. And nobody's done it yet.
0: Right. Right. Where, so where do you, so as to not get bogged down in CBA talks and how, I'll ask this and then I want to move on from it is yeah, where would you like to see the sizable advancement? Like to me, the discussions kind of break along three different areas and I've tried to maybe oversimplify, but simplify it down to like, look, the, the players want to get higher salaries earlier in their careers. They want to create, they want to disincentivize tanking by somewhat pulling the plug on the value of draft picks in hopes that that also helps to restore the middle class of free agents that has been squeezed out because players can be put into those roles or four players at the minimum can be put into the role once manned for by one guy for $3 million and owners can save money. So they want to try to find ways to restore that middle class. And then third, the owners want to increase or find new streams of revenue either through advertising on jerseys, advertising on helmets, whatever they're going to get from the growth of you know sports books and gambling in states as that starts to spread, and then expanded playoffs. Those are kind of the three elements, right? Right. And it's like both sides want to win. They both want to go two for three, and it's not possible. What, what, if I'm right on that, or, or take a fourth that I didn't mention, where would you see the most significant stride could be for the game to, from a fan perspective, Improve the game.
1: Um, Well, I'll add a fourth to it, and that's the competitive balance tax, and it, and at the very least, the penalties with that are associated with where the level is now. The level hasn't. I was including that in the draft area, but yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, like, I do think that some of those things are are to pull a baseball term, eyewash. I don't think that (laughs) adjusting the draft is going to to end tanking because I don't think we've seen the draft structures in other sports end that. I mean, we just saw a coach right. a former coach in the NFL is suing uh the league. And part of, you know, Brian Flores' argument is that the owner of the Dolphins offered him a hundred thousand dollars per extra loss to try yeah. and get the number one overall pick, right? And so so like there's there's I, I'm not sure how much of that actually ends up moving the needle towards that. Yeah. yeah. I think from a fairness standpoint, because teams value those zero to three players more, those players that have not reached arbitration yet, I think mm-hmm. to me, that's the, that's the place where the biggest gain should be made. Because if if they're going to count on those players, then they should be paid more commiserate with yes. what, they're, what they're valued at. I also think that there is a chance, although I'm a little bit skeptical from the union's line of thinking on this, that... If there's a choice between pay- paying a young player, you know, let's say. 750000 is the minimum versus five seventy. now, that that it would, that, that extra $180,000 might make somebody look twice at a middle-class free agent, right, who does the same thing. I don't actually think that's going to end up having an impact, but I do kind of, I hear what their argument is, but to me, that's the number one thing. But from a fan enjoyment standpoint, I mean, that, that to me is just fair, right? Like, that's fair. Mm-hmm. From a fan enjoyment standpoint, none of the things that we're talking about impact the fans' enjoyment of the game. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think any of it really? does. I don't think I don't think the competitive balance tax has done really anything to prevent to to draw up the bottom teams to be yeah. more competitive. I mean, I think revenue sharing has probably you know ha, has w- the idea of it was you're going to spend it on your major league roster, and I think that there are a few teams who are repeat offenders in terms mm-hmm. of taking that money and either pocketing it for profit or spending it out in other areas. And that, that to me would be a bigger issue to address. Like if you really wanted to address competitive balance, it would be not necessarily reducing the revenue sharing, but ensuring that it went to the major league roster. Like that to me is something that would be, um, uh, I think a reasonable thing to ask for and for the league to try and work on, even though you might get pushed back in, you know, say some spot in Western Pennsylvania, you know. So, like, <laughs> I, I don't think, well, I mean, and I only bring them up because don't, they don't, constantly don't, are at loggerheads with the union over that. I mean, that is an excellent pun
0: because isn't that where it, the England, yeah, no, yeah, yeah where, where the brewery, yeah, and there's some notable rivers that come together there. Yeah, there's a, a, couple a ballpark of them, that right? deserves a better team.
1: Yeah, but I mean yeah. that's not to say that necessarily. Doesn't Money it smell like ketchup? <laughs> are we
0: talking about the same place? Uh,
1: yes, I think we are. You can get okay. fries on your sandwich there. Um, oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That's a great place. The the um, we're having the- pierogies for dinner, so it's perfect. <laughs> Despite that, I mean, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that a team is going to be successful, that they spend more right. money, but it does give you more margin for error. You know, like we, we were just auditing the A's and like, you know, the A's are a team that's probably that seems to be in a perpetual state of a cycle of, you know, win for a couple of years and then have to trade away all its players. And as much as that extra money going towards payroll would help to retain some of those stars in the years where they were really good, having a little bit extra money would help to provide them some depth. To be able to, you know, withstand injuries or Mm -hmm. go deeper in the postseason. You know, I think those are some of the things that that would come about with that. So those are kind of that would be something for the fans. But I think, you know, everything that we're talking about has has very little to do with what's going on between the white lines. And I thought Tyler Kepner in the Times the other day had a really good take on that part of it. In that, you know, listen, like all of these things that we're talking about in this are purely financially motivated from either very rich people wanting to keep their money or workers wanting to get paid what they feel they deserve, which is something that should translate across every industry. But it doesn't do anything to improve the way the game is played on the field, and I think he's right. And I think if that's a completely separate argument, I understand why ownership has taken it off the ta- table in this because they don't want to have to horse trade that for something else where the union might mm-hmm. be resistant to it. But I do think that that is a much more important conversation whenever we get this settled and we get towards baseball twenty twenty three. Will you permit me in this time when we're still waiting for a counter proposal
0: for for a counter argument, though? because sure. I do think one element that we we talk about might subtly change the quality of play on the field and that is that 0 to 3 area just as you described if we in let me try to make this coherent okay so if we assign a value to war right and which we have wins above replacement we can talk about like how, this is how much that's worth to a team And we know that teams try to get better bang for their buck for wins above replacement. They don't want to pay; they would rather pay a million for a two-war player
1: than four million for a three-war player, right? Kind of. I think it's more that they would rather pay uh, four guys the league minimum to try and replace two wins in production than play than pay six or seven million dollars for. Well, really, it's on the free agent market. I know it changes based on how the quality of the player, but you're paying say 8 to 10 million dollars for a uh, two-war player, which is a league average producer. There you go. Okay,
0: so this is exactly what I'm getting at. Is they are willing to have slightly worse production on the field to maximize the value of what they're spending. So like like you just said, they would like to put four me mi- four minimum salary players. Into an aggregate production of slightly less than an average player than to pay the freight of an average player on the open market and get the slightly higher performance. I think we see in the game how that translates to pitching, where we see this constant churn of pitchers. We see young guys who aren't throwing strikes, who just throw hard, where we see guys who have stuff but not control. We see games where they're prolonged because those pitchers are either cycled through or counted on for multiple innings. And what we see is, and you've, you've seen this as well, is the average age of players is getting younger and younger. And the time spent in the minors is getting less and less. And trust me, I'm not one to say, like, they got to hit these quotas like, you know, 20 years ago, whether it's like, you know, th- this many innings in the minors, this many at bats in the minors, and that's when you're ready to go. No, I'm cool with players who are talented getting up as early and as often as an electric as possible let the youth shine but the fact of the matter is some of the pitchers and please tell me if you see this differently are being rushed to the majors to be part of that aggregate answer to avoid spending on a guy who does throw strikes and i i think mm-hmm. i can even think to this specifically like when i started on this beat in the you know decades ago as you like to remind people um you know, you think about, like, who was the middle reliever who was absorbing some innings for the Cardinals, right? It was Cal Eldred sometimes, right? Right, A guy who had been a former starter, who had established himself, who would go out there, and it was Matt Holliday who kind of talked to me about this. He goes, think about, like, who used to come in when games were out of hand. You knew you were going to get strikes because they had to get through, and they knew how to thro- throw strikes, and they would get by. Now you go in there when a game's out of hand – and it might be a guy who might walk three people. And so I, I think there is an element of if you raise the salary that must be paid of those zero three guys, diminish the return that teams can try to squeeze out by avoiding the high salary or the salary of an average player, that you actually get a peppier game because they are
1: going to, I know this is huge choose the better player over the aggregate. I think the problem with that is that the numbers that we're talking about are still relatively low compared to what that player would get in free agency, the veteran player, right? So you're talking about, you know, if you're four guys that are going to go on the shuttle back and forth to Memphis over the course of the year, just as an example, just using the Cardinals as an example, and, and everybody does this to some degree, right? Those guys, those four guys are still going to make $700,000 over the course of the year, if, or 750, whatever you want to raise that number to, versus say the $2 million that you were going to pay for that other guy. I actually think that if you're looking for that specifically to happen, then that's the two plus service time players are probably the better connection to it. So, sure. for those who don't understand, there, there are players enter into the arbitration system after three full years in the big leagues, with the exception of the top 22% of players in service time uh, that have more than two years, but less than three years. And that was a change that happened in the 80s. That number's actually kind of come up a little bit. It was, I think, 17% at one point. I want to say maybe back in in 2006 or so, it went to 22% from where where it is now. But uh, up until 81, it was all players with more than two years of service time went into the arbitration system. And so I think, that to me is a much bigger. Um, I don't know if deterrence the right word, but that would have a much big, greater impact on that decision versus um, versus this because I, mm. I just don't see. I don't think. I mean. If you're gonna pay four different guys, you know, and you only make major league money, the the when you're in the majors. when you're in the big leagues, yeah. so whoever the four guys are that are minimum salary players are gonna be seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever, seven fifty whatever you want to say, eight hundred thousand on your yeah. line versus the, the two or three million you would pay for that guy, right? Like that's two million bucks that you're saving that you can either throw at something else or that you can, you know, if if your um, you know owner doesn't necessarily want to. Contributed to payroll, you know, might give to spending on infrastructure or you know taking right. for themselves or whatever it is. So I don't think it's I, to me. It's not necessarily uh an either or because the numbers are so well. It's a lot of money to everybody but you because you cover the Cardinals of the Post Dispatch. For the rest of us, seven hundred thousand dollars wow. is a ridiculous amount of money. Um, it just in the in the grand scheme of things, it's really not all that much. Right. I, I just think if they can close that gap, that
0: is where the discussion on the economic core influences the quality of the game. If they yeah, can but the, the number the has to be the better significantly players...
1: higher than what the union is asking for. You know?
0: Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That to me think... is
1: like, if you want to pay those 0-3 to three guys and set the minimum at 1.5, then I think we can have a dis- discussion. But also knowing that bringing up the floor to that level is also going to probably drive the costs higher on right. those middle-tier players. So I don't know that you ever necessarily fully get there. I, I
0: just think something has to be done. Where the incentive is to put the better player on the field, not the better value.
1: Well, but that's part of the, the union's argument, though, too, in in the, the discussion of service time manipulation, you know, with players who, um, you know, spend three weeks basically in the minor leagues to either, you know, burn an option and not get service time. Or if they're not on the 40 man, it's what, like 17 days that they have to spend in the minors before they can bring up right. and the team gets an extra year of service time out of it. That seems to be more of the focus on most of the discussions is to, okay, let's get, you know, the the Chris Bryant example is the really good one or the easy one, right? Well, let's get it so that Bryant is in the big leagues right away for those extra 17 days. Okay, great. He gets the free agency sooner. He makes more money sooner. That's great for him. But it doesn't do much for the competitive balance in there other than to allow him to choose his employer sooner, which, you know, again, baseball players, unless they're amateur free agents, don't get to choose who they're working for. They get drafted into an organization and then are there for, you know, when you count the minor leagues, usually around nine or 10 years if they're fortunate enough to reach free agency.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that to me, like you were talking about, like the eyewash aspect, I I stopped short of saying that, but the argument where it's Chris Bryant, that's like an argument of one because how there aren't very many examples of that.
1: Totally agree. There's
0: there's a lot of angst about that at the front end of a player's career. Think about the young man from Seattle, right? Kellenick, right? Kellenick, yeah. How much worry was there that they were going to avoid burning him, right? And then they would delay his time. They would manipulate his time. Heck, I mean, it was a scandal because they openly acknowledged it in that meeting, right? That they they were going to manipulate service time. Well, it really didn't, in the end, didn't matter because he came up and he had to go back because he struggled. Um, you know, it's the, the Bryant one stands out, but trying to find other examples of that is
1: difficult. I mean, it's because one a lot guys of times players, yeah.
0: r- if that, right. I mean, you know, some of these guys, you it's it's one to two or three guys that you worry about. They're like, oh, my gosh, you're, they're going to manipulate him. Oh, my God. But then by the time the guy arrives, you're like, well, he doesn't belong here to begin with. You know, man, those cactus league stats look really good, but it's a whole other thing to be out here in the National League West for a few weeks. Yeah, you know? I mean, I can think maybe of maybe he does of need examples. more time.
1: I can think of a couple of examples with it too. Like Vlad Guerrero Jr. would have been another one, but he got hurt in spring training, right? And so, right. well, that made yep. it real easy, right? So, okay, well, we can send him down, um, you know, and then, and then you end up getting the extra year of control with him. Aloy Jimenez was sent out, signed a contract extension, opened with the White Sox on the roster. The Phillies right. avoided doing that with Scott Kingery, who had had a monster spring, and they signed to a big contract extension, and then he struggled enough that he's been dropped from the roster. You know, right. the the Astros kind of started that with uh, Jonathan Singleton. You know, this is almost a decade ago now. Singleton is in minor league camp now with the Brewers. But he had gotten a long-term extension before he'd made his big league debut. Evan White with the Mariners, another one who's had to go back to the minors and battled injuries this year. So, like, yeah, it's imperfect in all of this. But there are – there. I, I to me, I think that the, you're right in that – we spend a lot of time focusing on those because they are the outlier players, right? Those are the guys we want to talk about anyway. They're right. the stars or, or the potential future stars. They're the hyped players. And so we lose sight of what how it impacts uh, or, or what's more important to impact the others. And that's why, I, I mean, I think that's why there's this fight that's brewed on you know, the arbitration numbers is that the, the players see that as an avenue to try and ensure that younger players who are being counted on more are able to get more in that that third season whereas the league is holding firm because they've had it this way largely for 40 years and they know that that's, that that it doesn't just impact that third year but the fourth, fifth and sixth as well while they're mm-hmm. still under team control. So, and in fact, yeah. I would make the argument that if the if the players really wanted to try and alter that system, the arbitration stuff, okay, great. Like that's if you can get some concessions there, fine. But if teams are going to value the years of control, make them value all of the years of control. That's Absolutely. been my argument for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good is point. That Great point. One of the big reasons why we see um, kind of the middle class being tamped down in free agency is really since the late '90s or early 2000s, the number of free agents have gone from like a hundred or so to like. Four hundred or so, right. at least, guys that have been, you know, major league time. That whether they've been, you know, non-tendered or DFA'd, but the number of players that aren't tendered contracts who are in the arbitration number, you know, that's thirty or forty generally quality players. Most of them are league average to below, but they're guys that you need on a roster and on a competitive roster, and they're way better than the replacement level player that you can, you know, call up a AAA. And when I say replacement level, I'm talking about you're know, using wins above replacement, like a, a guy who's twenty percent better, worse than the league average performance. So, like that, to me, would be a much better route for the players to try and fight for, albeit one that would be much more difficult in making teams value all six years of their of that.
0: So, when this lockout fog lifts, which we count, trust that at some point in time it will, um, it might cost a few games. It might lead to an expedited spring training. What kind of frenzy are we looking at transaction-wise? As you did your audit of the 30 teams, how many of them look like complete teams at this point?
1: Well, not very many. I think, hang on, let me pull up my list. Who looks pretty complete? Um, I mean, I think everyone, even the ones that we have ranked highly... um, and again, like I'm trying to do this with with not making the assumption that any move is going to come. Right. Uh, yeah, that's all, what I mean. Right? Like, so like you like, look at the Dodgers and they're like, who, who are their five starters? I mean, they've got I mean, I can give you five starters for them. I mean, they have some. Sure. Talent there. But it, is it's- that a five
0: starters of an NL pennant team?
1: Well, I mean, some of that is beyond is to some degree beyond their control too, or at least part of it is beyond their control with regards to, to Trevor Bauer. So, um, you know, Houston is pretty close, although they could really use a shortstop, right? Like (laughs) Toronto is fairly close or they could use a left-handed bat. The White Sox have, um, you know, probably a corner outfield spot that they could fill, although they're, they're really close in that regard. I think Milwaukee, I don't see Milwaukee doing anything really crazy beyond what they've done so far. I mean, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, especially the way Rowdy Telez performed for them down the stretch, I don't know that they're necessarily going to go down the first base route. I mean, I think, I think it's, you start getting down and like maybe of the contending teams, the most complete is, uh, I don't know, or at least the roster that's going to look the most similar is San Diego. Maybe. Yeah. That's fair to say San Diego. They have a lot of guys coming back from injury. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's complete. I mean, we're, we we were like 35% of the way through free agency in and, and one of the best free agent classes we've ever seen when the whole world shut down and two of the best players went to the, the one of the worst teams. So uh, it's there's still a lot of room for every team to improve either via the free agents that are left on the market, and there are a lot of really good ones, or via trade, which we have not seen any semblance of a trade market as of
0: Yeah, when they haven't been able to talk during this time. Right. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to even kind of give a sense of how that might accelerate. If anything, that might, like, cause them to pause a little bit, but we might see a little bit more trade action in spring or coming out of spring than we usually do. That could be fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think maybe a little bit similar to, what was the year that Machado and Harper signed? Was that 18? 18? Mm-hmm. 19, yeah. 19, In the 19, there were some deals in spring training. There were some complex trades in spring training. There was a three team with the uh, Yankees, Rays, Diamondbacks. It comes to mind, you know what I mean? So like, so that was a free agent market that moved very, very slowly, despite the fact that there were some quality players on it. So I think maybe you would see some of that. Yeah. I think that's, that's entirely possible, but I also think it depends on, you know, how quickly like all of it's going to depend on what the finances look like afterwards. Right. So like, depending on how this shakes out, like what if the A's look like they're getting closer to a stadium and things are, are better for them financially out of this than they anticipated? Well, are they, maybe they're less likely to move, you know, Olsen, Chapman, Montas, Mania, Bass, right. (laughs) Laureato. Right. Like, well, you have a lot of arbitration
0: hearings. You have a lot of arbitration hearings still hanging in the air. So you got to imagine that those will be under previous rules.
1: Well, everything this year will likely spirit. work under previous rules, unless, right? Because that was the team.
0: spirit in which they were tendered contracts. Right.
1: But so, I also think that I, those those hearings will happen in season potentially too. I believe that right. happened in '95, where right. players were like on off days, having to fly to New York for their arbitration hearings.
0: Well, that's yeah, and that's kind of what I mean. Is like you look at some of these guys, like even like like a Richard Blyle, Bly Blyer, right? I was fascinated by that. Like, he, you know, pretty strong lefty reliever, been good for the Marlins. Arbitration, you know, is he less likely to stick around? Because what if they lose that arbitration? And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden they're spending more than their financial structure maybe has in place for a setup reliever, right? And then another team makes that deal a little bit earlier in the season just because his salary wasn't set until an April 21st
1: arbitration hearing. I mean it's just fascinating. Plus it takes you past that that so the teams have outs in arbitration contracts or 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 those right. pre <clears throat> pre-six year contracts where um, based on, you know, like they can either give, what is it, is it 45 or, or 30 days severance? So it's either one sixth or one right. one quarter of their, their salary, depending on the date and spring training that, that they're at, where they could, you know, if you made $2 million in arbitration and, um, you know, they you want to deal, like they could get rid of you for a portion of that cost. So they, they can release you with severance pay. So like, the, yeah, all of that gets impacted for sure. And then, you know, how's it going to play out? And, and the other part that I think is a little bit. Um, you know, at least worth keeping an eye on is what do revenue streams look like coming out of this? You know, how mad are people, right? Like if we miss right. a significant of the season or even the first couple of days of the season, you know, in 72, which was the first work stoppage that affected games, when the players came back with 13 days into the season, opening day in a lot of spots had 3,000 fans. Now, I don't think we're gonna only see 3,000 fans, but you will see some spots that are not sellouts as a result, if there are games missed. So that impacts revenue. Does that end up taking potentially a a team that would acquire somebody like that off the books? Does it force a team to make a deal earlier than they intended to? All of those things are things that we just don't know the answer to. And we're only going to be able to play Monday morning quarterback. Where were the Cardinals in your audit? Um, Do you see them as
0: a pretty complete team at this point?
1: Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I think complete team... Like for my brothers, no, but are they a largely finished product from what they're trying to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's fair. You've written about that, right? Like it's not like, you know, I, I think they could use a second baseman, but I know they've got Nolan Gorman coming, um, which they at least seem to think can play second base. Right. So, um, yeah. you know, I think got they a-
0: need a second baseman. The guy won a gold glove there.
1: Yes. Huh. I think Tommy Edmond is better served playing multiple different positions rather than being an everyday guy personally. I think that takes advantage of a lot of his strengths and that he can do Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. Um, You know, he had pretty pronounced splits. Um, There are some things that – I mean, I I really like Tommy Edmond as a player. I just think that that's a better role for him than being at second base, especially if you could find a way to add a left-handed – like a a pretty solid (laughs) left-handed bat to that lineup. I feel like that's something that they – have They've been lacking for a while, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't see them addressing shortstop, which is the other spot. You could theoretically go for that, but there's not really that left-handed hitting shortstop that's available now. Um, and certainly not at their price point. So, you know, they're going to go reliever maybe, right? Like, yeah. is there another depth starter that they could do? Yeah. They're pretty complete. I have them. Let's see. Among nationally teams and the Dodgers, we haven't done the Dodgers yet, but I have them ahead of them. I really like Milwaukee. I have them pretty high. Atlanta so I've got them as like the fourth best team in the National League hmm. yeah I get them right about the spot of San Diego San Diego's got a lot of talent but a lot of question marks with all these pitchers coming back from injuries so I think they're they're pretty good but I can see the Cardinals being in that I don't think there's that much difference between them and the Brewers I think based on um, you know what we've seen from the early projections from Fan Graphs. It looks like they have the Cardinals slightly ahead of Milwaukee in that division, and so yeah, I think they're they're just about that spot. I mean, I think listen, they've got Goldschmidt, good Arenado, who I think is going to be better offensively in his second year. Um, you know, the Tyler O'Neill story is one that I'm really interested to follow. I think Bader's strides offensively were completely overlooked uh, Mm -hmm. nationally on how much better he got offensively, in addition to being one of the best defenders in center. And I think there's more in the tank for Carlson. I don't think Carlson's going to be like this perennial all-star, but I think he's, you know, I think the power numbers will come as he gets a little more, comfortable and I think you can see a 25 homer corner bat so I think there's a lot to like with what the Cardinals are doing I, I think there's a little bit of, of concern I think with the rotation and the depth of it um and I'm sure that they would love to have somebody to kind of take that Garcia role in the pen to that actually throw strikes because that was such a huge yeah. issue last year in the first half of the season but I think they're a pretty good team as it stands
0: right now where's the gap then that has you
1: suggesting the Brewers
0: are ahead of them
1: I don't think it's, I don't think it's very far. I mean, I think the fact that the Brewers run out three potential Cy Young candidates in their rotation is probably the biggest thing to me. You know, I mean, I love Jack Flaherty. I think Flaherty rebounds, you know, what Wayno's done is great. But to me, I I just really like Milwaukee's rotation. They have, um, you know, arguably the top reliever in baseball anchoring that. And, and I think, Um, You know, I think it's a good bet that Yelich bounces back. I think what you saw over that three-month stretch before he got hurt from Adamus is pretty close to what you'll get. I think he's an above-average regular at that position. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple things there that that, they have a little bit of attention. Yeah, Renfro's one of those guys that, like, I I love Hunter Renfro because I think he does – he's one of those guys that, like, he's kind of like an 80s throwback player in that he mm-hmm. runs really well. He's got a crazy arm. Defensive metrics really seem to like him, but I think if you watch him, you kind of go, I don't know. Like, he'll hit some long home runs, but the approach isn't great. And so yeah. as a down lineup hitter, he's great. And he's a fun player to watch because he's he's a crazy athlete. And, like he like, he really runs well. When he got to Mississippi State, he was a catcher, which is, to me, is like, unbelievable because this is one of the best athletes you'll see like he he could he's athletic enough i think he could play in the nfl like he's that kind of an athlete really? wow. he's i mean he really runs well and or at least you know maybe a couple of years ago he could have but like i think there's there's you know there's he's not without his charms but i don't think he's as good a hitter like a hitter hitter as garcia was in right and so i think they, mm. they you know they add some power and they add some speed and they add a little bit of arm strength and, and a strong metric defender. But I think from a, you know, if you're going to pick between the two guys, just based on the bat, I would take Garcia because I think Garcia is Garcia is just a little bit better hitter than what Renfro is. You can pitch to Renfro.
0: So who then benefits more from a DH? Like if you have the Brewers slightly ahead of the Cardinals, but maybe their offense needs Yelich to be much better. Yes. Um, then who and and the Cardinals, you know, they need their offense to improve as well, uh, more as a group than say an individual. Though getting more from shortstop would be huge for them. Um, add depth to that. Lineup. Who's helped more by a DH, and how does that change things? If if the Brewers count on Telesby in first base and Renfro being right field, do they have an upgrade at DH that that changes their offense?
1: No, but I don't necessarily think the Cardinals do either. Do they? Do you think the Cardinals I mean, are a, well, they're they're counting designated hitter.
0: Oh uh, well, no. I I mean, I think they they could shop for one. Um, I guess both teams could. I mean, you see Nelson Cruz pop up in Milwaukee, that changes their look quite a bit. Um, the Cardinals are banking on you know Juan Yapez, young guy who crushed yeah. AAA pitching and then did really well out there in Arizona in the Arizona Fall League. Um, sort of a, a player who to maybe liken him to some a player we might see 10, 15 years ago as kind of the guy who crushes fastballs off the bench, yeah. who faces, you know, the closer um, just because of his success against fastballs or faces the, the fire-breathing dragon coming out of the bullpen. Um, you know, they, they like him. They'd like to see him get a run. Um, they also really are intrigued by Newbar, who has done more than any prospect to advance his cause mm-hmm. and rise on the depth chart. Um, a guy who had a strong Arizona Fall League, really just appears done with AAA, to be honest. Um, Could be a fourth outfielder, um, but could be the left-handed option at DH. Or, you know, they they see those two guys being, you know, sub-ins so that they can get their regulars, you know, that kind of half day off Tony La Russa used to talk about, but that that it's their addition to the lineup that the, that the DH would allow.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you can play a little bit of the same game with Milwaukee. If, you know, Keston Hura comes closer to bouncing back to what we saw in 2018, you, you know, like yeah, yeah. Hura, Hura has a, a pretty strong pedigree and a top 10 pick in the draft and the top college hitter that year and defense has always been an issue for him, but up until really, and I, I don't count 2020 for much either way, um you know like he did not have a good 2020 but he really did not have a good 2021 and i think there are probably some things that he can do to adjust there that might give them a little bit of power down in the lineup and he has a little mm. more experience than those guys do so yeah i mean but the the question is like are either of those teams really going to go and add somebody externally like what's the probably price not. point that's going to go you know like the cardinals have been resistant to add really any other big it seems like it's the one big piece of winter move right last year it was arenado Who is the starter this year now i'm blanking on steven Matz chance. steven Matz right so okay like they had a pretty serviceable starter i like matt's i think he's pretty good but it doesn't seem like they're looking to add matt's and another you know everyday type player. And and that's a shame to some degree, whether it's the Cardinals or Milwaukee, but like you mentioned Cruz, but like Jorge Soler is out there too, is a free yeah. agent. And Soler yep. is a DH candidate. You know, somebody he's hitting seventh in a lineup talking about a guy who just mashes fastballs. He had a really rotten first half of the year in Kansas city <coughs> put it together in the second half. But as a guy who probably is a low batting average, decent walk rate, crazy, stupid power guy, Like he should be interesting to some national league teams. And those two teams would see a huge benefit. I think from adding someone like him or Nelson Cruz, Nelson Cruz, Nelson Cruz to me is like a huge difference maker on a club, not just for his presence in the lineup, but more importantly for his presence in the clubhouse. This is a top five human being in baseball. Like he is like Nelson Cruz is the best, like the best. He changes a clubhouse when he walks into it. He's unbelievable. One of the best teammates ever. One of the most respected voices in the game. Like, if you really want to take it to another level, like, you know, you, you, I mean, the, listen, the Cardinals putting him with him and Goldschmidt kind of leading the charge there watch out. I know Paul doesn't like to think of them that way, but everybody looks up to what Paul does. Like that that to me would be a huge culture changer for that organization. If they went down that road, I just, there's nothing in the recent history that makes me think that they're going to.
0: I, I think you, you touched on like Paul Goldschmidt, not liking the description there. You're, <laughs> you're, you're so right about that. Um, my little, I don't know the, the, m- my view of the Cardinals say last year, but really going into this year, it, I think it still applies is the the Cardinals are at their best when Goldschmidt is the presence that drives them and Arenado is the personality.
1: That yes, them. yes.
0: You know, if they take on the personality of Arenado, it's a really good team. If they rely on the presence of Goldschmidt, that's an exceptional team. And it really, you know, the, that that 17 consecutive wins, that 17-game seven game winning streak. Now, you know, they're not going to do that. They haven't done that before in club history. But the style of play they had there, man, they were swashbuckling defensively. And they were um, – they pitched well. Um, they were aggressive with their defense. Um, and they were reliable, sometimes even plotting, but some—but often timely offensively. Obviously, Tyler O'Neill was a big part of that. Yeah. some Bader's improvement was a big part of that but it was kind of the steady metronome of knowing that Paul Goldschmidt was going to be Paul Goldschmidt that made the the kind of offensive engine run and it's like well that's the style of play that makes them best that's when they're their best they they they're swashbuckling and aggressive and dynamic defensively and they're pulling off those you know the phone call you know the phone number play um and and they're just they're doing they're stealing hits they're stealing plays they're rely, they're they're building Um, a wall behind their their pitcher and helping him out and offensively I mean could could you remember much about their offense during that 17 game winning streak probably not but it was always there and I think that's the style that serves them
1: best I mean I think I think to me, Arenado is a little bit like he can be a little bit variable offensively because he's such an aggressive hitter that right. you're going to see some some fits and starts. But his at bats with men in scoring position are just stupid. Like he's he's a guy that you want up in those big spots because I think he he has his best moments in those. That's when he really locks in. I think in. he
0: brings a brashness that the Cardinals need. Well, he you know, plays like, with that's a one joie thing de that they You know what I mean? Like he's yeah, just, yeah. He's just well, I mean, such I don't I don't speak energy. Well, I I don't yeah. either,
1: but but. But you know, it's close. It's a little a like zest for life. life. He brings yeah. a zest for life. Yes, yeah. but there, yeah, there's a there's an energy to the way Nolan Arenado plays. But yeah. I will say that I don't think he's alone in that. I just think he's the biggest name in that. Bader plays with that energy too. Harrison Bader plays like his hair is on fire. I think there's a little more of that in Tyler O'Neill than than I realize. You know, one of the sneaky things with the Cardinals, I think, that gets lost is how athletic that outfield is. I didn't oh, yeah. appreciate that O'Neal could here. move. Well, we can fly, but you got to remember, you watch them 150 times a year,
0: even if I'm if I'm 200 200 200 times with spring
1: training. Yeah, but I mean, like you watch them in games that count 150 or so times a year. You do take a week off now. You take a week off. I still watch the games. Okay, so you watch them 162 times a year without playoffs in, in games that matter. I might see them 10 or 15, and I think you really have to talk to people to get. A sense of of where O'Neill is, and and I think the metrics help with that too. But yeah, Tyler O'Neill,
0: five percent in speed and top five percent in exit velocity. That's yeah, a pretty rare combo.
1: Really strange, really bizarre. And listen, crazy high strikeout rate. And like, do I think the offensive numbers could take a step back uh, a little bit? But sure there's not a whole lot of left like left field is a pretty dire position right now in major league baseball and there are a whole lot of them that can score from first on a double you know what I mean? like tyler o'neill is scores backpedaling on a double you know what i mean so like there's there's might just give him an idea there you know? yeah it'd <laughs> be kind of fun if he did that so like i think yeah. that there's a there are some other dynamics that play in that feed off arenado there goldschmidt is just like I mean, listen, I covered, I I mean, I was a Diamondbacks broadcaster. So I was around Paul in 16, 17 and 18. And there is no steadier human being alive than Paul Goldschmidt. And, you know, he does not want, as you know, any attention for it whatsoever. He is a total lunch pail, go to work kind of guy, but the, everybody kind of gravitates towards that because he is just that presence in the middle of the lineup. He doesn't want to be the guy that everybody is focused on. He will stand up and answer all the questions if you need him to because that's what a real leader does. But he just is he is so consistent in everything that he does. That yeah, I, I agree. Like if you just need to just plug Paul into the, the two or three spot in the order and let him go.
0: But behind the scenes, he's more vocal than he lets on, as you know. Yes, hundred percent. In these baseball meetings or in the hitter meetings or when they're doing base running things, you know, he, he's he's the he's the he's the guy in class who is who leads by substance and yes. isn't afraid to speak up. Who is a a better, really
1: who is a better base runner, him or Albert?
0: Whoa, wait, what? That's an interesting question. Who's a better base runner, Paul Goldschmidt or Albert Pujols? Yeah, Albert was Ooh. a great base runner. Albert was a great base runner. I saw Paul him was a great
1: it. base runner. Paul takes the best turns of anybody in the league.
0: Well, and he thinks – and has have you talked to him about his explanation on some of these? These are things that, like, he practices. They mm-hmm. had a thing once, right, where yeah, he, he talked about, like, uh, in spring training, and he was telling them where to hit the first base with their front mm-hmm. toe mm-hmm. and not aim for the middle of the bag or not aim for the front of the bag, but just the very lip of the bag, because he, he was like, that's all you need to get to. And then step over the bag, like get there as fast as possible with just the front of your toe. And like, he thinks in those terms and he tries to explain and like, there are times where the, like Dylan Carlson has talked about how um, a tip on base running that he got from Paul Goldschmidt is why he scored from second on a, <laughs> on a play. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just so fascinating. Um, I saw Albert Pujols once score from second on a ground ball to second at Coors Field. Ground ball to second base. Rocky's second baseman looks pools, looks at him right at second base, goes, well, he's just going to go to third, then tosses a rainbow to first base. Like, I mean, the, the, there was probably 50 feet, 60 feet maybe between the second baseman and the first baseman at this time. <laughs> And he just was like, well, that's a hard throw to third. I'll let him get that base, right? And so he turns and just lollipops a rainbow towards Todd Helton, who screams, no, like you could hear him go, no. And then Albert, realizing what happened, just runs on from third because the ball was just arcing down towards (sighs) first base. Helton had no chance. It was was like the parent watching the kid let go of the helium balloon, knowing you couldn't stop it. (laughs) Todd Helton's look of anguish as Albert wheels around third to score on the lollipop throw on the casual laissez-faire throw. And that's the winning run. Unbelievable. But to answer your question, um, Paul Goldschmidt is the better base runner. Paul Goldschmidt reminds me of Scott Rowland, who was one of the best base runners I've ever seen who wasn't like, uh, you
1: know, lightning. I, I don't mean this is to to denigrate Paul at all, but I think he is more risk adverse on the bases than Albert was. Albert would try and sneak one by you a little. Albert's, more. Albert's than, than, invisible yeah. cloak that he talked yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. 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 Misch- mischief managed to continue the
0: Harry Potter references on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> he would have the. They're like. Is he invisible over there? There'd, there'd be times where the pitcher would be like, well, he's not going to steal because he's Albert Pools, right? He's not going to steal. And then the pitcher would pay no attention and then all of a sudden go into his windup, and Albert was already at second. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I saw you're Paul right. have a
1: 30, 30 stolen base season though, and it's not like Paul is all that fast. So like, it's just he's it's pretty he, remarkable. He just knows. But I mean, I, both I saw those a season guys, where
0: Yadier Molina led the Cardinals in steals,
1: and all those guys worked with Dave McKay, and that's probably yeah. the common thread in all of it because Dave might be Great a, point. the best base running coach in baseball history and the best outfield coach in baseball history.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, Willie McGee works with him now, and it's really interesting. Um, because you see guys improve, and that's actually been you, – so you talk about something that maybe didn't get as much attention. Harrison Bader's base running. Um, He's got the speed to do it, and the improvement he made base running-wise. Tommy Edmond can get there. These, these are the guys who can steal more t- – Tyler O'Neill has the speed to do it. It's remarkable. Um, you had the Cardinals fourth in the National League, yeah. and that leads me to the last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about, is do you see the National League as vulnerable – I mean, it's been it's been the Dodgers for the most part saying, well, they're the clear favorite to win the pennant. The Braves overtook them and won the World Series this past year, but the Braves don't have Freddie Freeman at the moment. They might, but they don't. Um, but the Dodgers have been the king of the NL for a while. Mm-hmm. And the Giants overtook them in the division. Um, but I think that was not something that was counted on. The 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 constant has been the Dodgers. Do you do you think the National is a little bit more Maybe volatile vulnerable is not the word. Maybe volatile is. Maybe is it is it more wide open this year?
1: Um Well, the Mets are gonna be better, right? Scherzer think,
0: insists so, yeah.
1: You know, I think they're going to be better. I mean, they've got an owner who, yeah, you know, he doesn't care what <laughs> ends up happening in the lockout. Like, he's going to spend till he gets to the number that he's comfortable with, which could be $600 million. It doesn't matter. He just wants to win. Yeah. He grew up a Mets fan. The guy is like the next three rich, richest owners in baseball, I don't think, are worth the same as Steve Cohen, right? He's worth $14 no. billion. Like, he's a throwback owner. He just wants to win. That's all he cares about. So, like, this is his favorite team. This is like, this is why Walking around money for him, so I think the Mets are going to be better. I do think Atlanta is still going to be formidable because they will have a first baseman who is not currently on their roster, whether that's Freeman or somebody else. Um, Anthony team, Rizzo, Atlanta Matt Braves. Ol- Matt Olson, oh yeah, yeah, Atlanta no, I would make sense. Um, but Rizzo would I was be just another musing. one. Yeah, I mean Rizzo. I mean Rizzo would be a fit. You know, I mean he would be the the least expensive, at least in terms of the combination of dollars and prospects. Um, And certainly would be good, but the Braves will be good. I think the Phillies will be a little bit better. The Nationals aren't going to be very good. The Marlins, it could go either way. They have such a good win now, pitching staff, but they're so thin offensively. Led by former Cardinal
0: Sandy Alcantara.
1: Yeah, who is a way better pitcher than I thought he was going to be. So good. Boy, he is. Speaking of throwbacks, like that's a 200-inning machine. He's great. Yeah. Yep. You know, the central is really, to me, the Brewers and the Cardinals. You know, the I think the, the Reds, I'll be interested to see how the Reds come out of this. Like, are they going to, are they moving money around to be able to add a little bit? Like that, that could, they could just kind of reallocate resources on that roster and be relatively competitive. I don't think the Giants are quite as good as they were last year. I don't think they're awful, but I don't necessarily think that they're a playoff team. I think the Padres will be better. I think the Dodgers are still good. So, you know, that's what, eight teams that are legitimate playoff contenders for six or seven playoff spots, depending on what the CBA ends up with. Um, maybe top-heavy is the right way to look at it, because I don't think the Cubs are going to get there huh. um, this this year. I don't, I, I don't think the Rockies and Diamondbacks are going to end up being competitive this year. Um, so when you
0: say top-heavy, though, do you mean like, the ones at the top are all comparable or they're just a handful of contenders. For example, like how close is the gap between if you have the Cardinals fourth and you have the Dodgers first first, or the Mets second, what's the golf there?
1: I think the golf between the Dodgers and everybody else in the national league is still. Okay. Even with their shortstop
0: gone, and yeah, but there's their short has gone, but they gone. put Trey
1: Turner in that spot. You know, sure. So like you yeah, no, really could have been the MVP in the National League last year, you know. They you know Gavin Lux had a strong finish to the year, and while there's questions about him defensively, he's a pretty good offensive player. Um, well, you know, he might not
0: have to play the outfield, for goodness sake.
1: I mean, Kershaw, Kersh, well, that, that actually might end up being the best spot for him, because he's had some throwing issues from second. So yeah, um, that's at least Gosh. something to keep an eye on. They brought back Chris Taylor. Like, that gets overlooked. Chris Taylor's really good. No, no,
0: he's really good.
1: And and Kershaw was... But, hey, Cardinal fans
0: are aware of how good he is, just yeah. so you know. Oh, no, I know. I, know. I mean, he, he did end Sorry. their season. Yeah.
1: Uh, Kershaw's probably going to be happened. back. Kershaw's going to be back, probably. What about Kenley I mean, Jansen? Who's going to close? Joe yeah. Kelly. He ain't coming back, is he? Well, but Blake Trinan has been one of the better relievers in the National yeah, League the that's last fair. couple of years. So, like, and, and they find relievers. Like, remember, remember in 2016 when like Joe Blanton was the best reliever in the National <laughs> League, yeah. throwing 75 innings for them. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, and and they have a really deep farm system, and they have some young arms, like. At some point, I would guess that in the, the month of August or September, you're going to see Bobby Miller in the big leagues in the same similar way to how Dustin May and, and Walker Bueller broke yep. in. I watched Bobby Miller this fall and walked away going, holy smokes, like that's a guy that throws a hundred. He was there there what second rounder out of Louisville, first rounder out of Louisville in 2020. Like that's a huge arm and like it's all the elements are there. So they still have a really strong pipeline that they can deal from too. So, you know, I think again, like we're frozen in time and the Dodgers really haven't done anything other than bringing back Chris Taylor, And, you know, Kershaw kind of made it sound like he's going to pitch again. And if he does, I have a really tough time thinking that he's going to go anywhere other than the Dodgers. I know the Rangers would like him, but I think LA is the most likely spot. And then you're adding some other premium piece because they have both the financial wherewithal and the trade capital to be able to add someone that can upgrade that roster. So, you know, whether it's signing Freddie Freeman or trading for somebody major that might be available for a couple of years, like, all those things are in play with L.A. So I think it's still a pretty wide gap between the Dodgers and everybody else. Let, last year, not not last year doesn't change anything in that for
0: me. The, the perception of the Cardinals locally is that they will stop short of going, you know, quote unquote, all in or stop yeah. short of making that final step from contender to favorite. Yes. And it kind totally, of sounds agree. Like- totally agree.
1: Totally agree it's so frustrating to me as somebody who's not a Cardinals fan, but who watches it and sees like, Hey, we've got this pretty good collection of talent. Like I just want them to make that one more move to push them forward. Right. Like they, they just always feel like they're one short in one spot. And I want them to make that move really badly. Now that's again, like I don't have any of their internal information and like any of that, but I feel like that's been the story the last, five years or so is the like, God, they're just like, they always feel like they're one player short. Like, give me a left-handed bat that can play in the middle of the infield who can hit with a little pop. Like, please give me that guy. And all of a sudden my feeling about the Cardinals changes. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. to me is a big, that. that's a big thing that I think is, I do think it's a reasonable criticism. I doubt the Cardinals front office thinks it's a reasonable criticism, but I do think it's a reasonable criticism of them in that they have stopped that one player short of getting it like like and and like when they did push in it was like for Dexter Fowler and Brett Cecil right like it was- well
0: but that was scramble like that was they didn't get Adam Eaton oh my gosh that's what it costs to trade for a guy like Adam Eaton we're not prepared to play that steep a price right. we'd rather pay dollars oh we gotta add, add an extra year Ooh, all right well we're taking away from a rival to get a leadoff hitter can't trade for him because we don't want to give up that steep a price. Prospect wise, okay, all right, fine, let's go but for the Somebody At
1: the top of the lineup, you're not getting a huge like, and nothing. Against I'm not Dex, defending it. I love, I'm explaining. You know I mean? it. Yeah, I know. I understand yeah, what yeah, the explanation yeah, yeah. is. Yeah. And I remember John Mozeliak saying, "Well, listen, if you're rational on every free agent, you're going to finish second on everyone, right?" That's a, some. Well, some there for a while they terrifying. did, and they did. But then it's just the ones that they chose to push in on were the ones where we went, "Oh, are you sure you wanted to go down that road?" So, like. I think that there's, I think it's, it is a valid criticism of what has happened over the last five years or so. And it's something I would love to see them address because they're like, you know, they should be the behemoth in that division right now with the Cubs, you know, taking whatever step back they've had to do or decided to do, I should say. Like this should be the Cardinals division for the taking. Milwaukee is that's a great front office it's good ownership like they spend way above their market size right like that's the the smallest market in major league baseball and yet they constantly put together a competitive team the cardinals to me feel like they just need that that, that if they could go for that one more piece and it doesn't need to be like a 10 year deal for a 30 year old guy. It can be via trade to be able to add someone who's going to be there for a year or two Mm -hmm. to help anchor that lineup or, or, you know, help front that rotation with Flaherty, especially with Wainwright, you know, probably done after this year. Like, the, those guys, I think, are, are the ones that they're just missing right now where you could do that one more piece of heavy lifting now and then add in extra pieces at the deadline to make you more dangerous in October versus being in a position where you feel like you need to trade for that guy on July 31st when the prices are a little bit
0: higher. I'll take it a step further. I think it's not just a fair criticism. I think it is actively their business model. Oh, I mean, it's most teams, isn't it? Come just shy. Get in see what happens, but yeah. stay just shy because that one last step, that's that's a significant spending and high risk. And the Cardinals and a lot of other teams are risk-averse when it comes to those high dollars. It's why they talked themselves several times out of pursuing Max Scherzer when in each instance he would be that last
1: step. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be a high dollar guy. It can be a high cost acquisition via trade. You know, well, like I mean, that's, but that's
0: the same thing for them. I mean, largely, yeah, figure, and, yeah.
1: But but that's the whole like it goes back to one of the most important. And I mean, they the didn't worst. give up.
0: They didn't want to give up Bader or O'Neill. Bader or O'Neill. They didn't want to give them up for Zach Wheeler. And now you go. Well, that probably worked out for them, I guess, because two months of Zach Wheeler. You know, and now they wouldn't have Bader or O'Neill. But you could argue that not having Wheeler for two months meant that they weren't a playoff team right. or weren't as good um, once they got to the playoffs and they didn't have that final piece. Um, you know, this past year, their patience, if they want to call it that, cost them their division. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Brewers made the move that they needed. They saw the guy who was not a fit anymore for his team. They made the move early in the season for an area of obvious need the cardinals did not they were like we're going to rely on our young guys we're going to rely on our aggregate we're going to find a guy off waivers maybe and even then they did that late you know i i i can't imagine that they couldn't have gone and got ja hap in june and instead right. they got him at the deadline
1: yeah no i i totally agree and i and i understand like listen it's the the one of the most important books I think that has been written in the last 20 years was baseball between the numbers, which was a baseball prospectus book, which broke down a lot of it. And the best and yep. the worst chapter in it is the one about why Billy beans, you know, what doesn't work in the playoffs. And I think too many executives have adopted that philosophy of, we just need to get there. The playoffs are a crap shoot. Anyway, who knows what's going to happen. You can be the Dodgers and be this incredible team and, you know lose because because Joe Kelly gives up a home run and Howie Kendrick goes off and like all those things right. and yeah okay that's great but the more talent you have the better your odds are of insulating against that i mean that's where Correct. depth that's yeah, what yeah. the Dodgers have done really well is depth right like adding talent helps to protect that it does change the odds does it change it 15 percentage points probably not does it change it 5 maybe but could that 5 be enough yeah and if it isn't like the worst thing that happens is that you've, you're either out some money or you're yeah. out a couple of players who you liked, but hopefully not as much as the ones that you kept <laughs> if you're scouting yeah. your organization properly. So I, yeah. I just don't I, – I hear that argument a lot. I understand the argument. I know where it comes from because you're right. Like anything can happen in a short series. Luck plays a disproportionate factor. But the goal is to win. And the best players give you the best chance to win. Well, that's, that's a very good way to end it there. Man,
0: you know how to close a, sh- close a show. there was like a <laughs> nice like punctuation. A yeah, no, that was good. And I, I'll take a hint, man. We've talked here. No. for This, this is going to set a record for the longest, best podcast in baseball. Oh, we had yeah, a lot to cover, be. and I appreciated it, man. Well,
1: I'm happy to do it. You know, I love talking ball with you. You're a good friend, and um, I love just talking baseball, and I hope I get to see you this summer, too. Yeah, baseball. well, you'll Realized. see me.
0: You'll see me unless they only unless they only play a season long enough to only play division
1: games. I guess. Gosh, <laughs> the All Star Game at least. So
0: <laughs> definitely see you at the All Star Game at Dodger Stadium. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be, That'll fun. be fun. Um. Yeah. So can I can we can I tell you one other thing? Well, two other things I have in my yeah. office here. Okay. Because yeah. you talked about your artwork. So I do have um the Pearl Jam poster from when they played in St. Louis. Okay, it was a gift. I I did I went to the concert. It was a gift. It was really cool from my, my wife because it has a red bird on a bat. Which is kind of slick looking, right? So it's like right. Pearl Jam with the concert band of How horses. How much do you think and that and killed
1: that? Vetter to put that
0: together? Well, in that it was so I, I mentioned that and I think that's why my wife got it for me, because I was like, you know, he's a huge Cubs fan. And later on, um, one of one of the more unbelievable days of my life on this beat was there when the the Cubs beat the um pirates in that one game playoff in twenty fifteen right yeah, Jake I was there. And all that group. yeah, yep, yeah, you were there. there's a photo that the that, that's gone around about my reaction to Jake Arietta lighting up a cigar near a plastic sheet um <laughs> not pictured as the plastic sheet, so it just looks like I'm amazed at his cigar, but no the 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 boy scout in me is fearful for my life because of uh. the plastic sheet that's near a butane torch um but whatever um but in that mix of that uh celebration in the in the in the in the cubs clubhouse you know so someone tugs on my shoulder or on my on my like my elbow right and uh and goes hey st louis guy is this what it's like and i turn around and it's eddie vetter really yeah
1: that's crazy
0: in that is he goes st louis
1: guy that's is, awesome is this st. what it's louis like guy, is this what it's like hey do you were?
0: Really <laughs> yeah we'd been introduced before the game oh um, ah, okay We were introduced before the game. Um, And actually, he talked to me and he gave me a quote from my story, which was amazing before the game, where he said, St. Louis has what we want. And he was talking about not like not like that day, not like that October. He was talking about that history of no longer chasing championships, but accumulating them. Mm -hmm. And he says, that's what we we want, that history of not having, you know, years without a championship. But having just an accumulation of championships to lord over teams,
1: it was really he
0: was it was awesome to talk to him. Yeah, um, you know, Cubs obviously he's incredibly
1: and, jealous of the Cardinals and Cardinals fans. I mean, incredibly
0: yeah, jealous. yeah, and he but he put that jealousy like in perspective, like yeah, you know, it's not tomorrow that we're that we're we don't want to like duplicate their championships tomorrow. We want to have a you know the next decades like them. That's what mm-hmm. that's what matters. And I thought that was interesting. But yeah, yeah, he he was like St. Louis guy. Is that is this what it's like? So there's there's my um pearl jam story how about that that's awesome Um, last the the one the only photos that i have up baseball wise is of uh shoeless joe and babe ruth sitting beside each other and oh yeah shoeless joe is holding the bat and like pointing towards the sweet spot of the bat and young babe ruth is leaned over looking down it's awesome i love
1: that photo Oh that's so cool. I don't I'm have sorry. any I'm sorry. Babe photos Ruth up.
0: is holding the bat. I'm sorry. Babe Ruth is holding the bat. Young Babe Ruth is holding the bat and Shoeless Joe is talking about the sweet spot.
1: So I don't have any photos up, but I have the lineup card from the first major league game I called, which the oh, cool. called me, which is really neat. Um, so I've got that sitting right by my desk from back when I worked with them. I have one of my prize possessions is my wife likes these thrift stores that we have on seventh Avenue in Phoenix, which are really cool. Like we, we have like a lot of mid-century furniture because you know, when, when in Rome, right? Like Phoenix, is right, like right. Century. she found the radio part of an old radio shack sign and painted it bronze. And I have wow. that hanging on my wall. So that's one of the cool things. Cause, cause it just reminds everybody what I do for a living. Sometimes I forget.
0: Wow so, and then that's I also quick. have
1: a, a print of um uh, that somebody did f- several years ago of um the dance and Homer it's a Springfield isotopes dance and Homer appearing every nice. home game at the bottom of the fourth and seventh inning that's so, amazing yeah, yeah it's really perfect. cool that's those are, those are my uh those are some of the uh, the fun artwork that I have up. we have fun art in our house in general, so. that's
0: awesome well that's MLB network radio host extraordinaire Mike. You can find him on MLB network radio. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. That's Mike, of course, because you know, he's a broadcaster underscore <laughs> Farron. <laughs> never heard that before. Actually, I haven't. I had, I've been saving. I've been waiting it all along. Uh, so Mike underscore Farron F E R R I N Mike. Thank you so much. You're a good friend. You're great to talk ball with. I, I, uh, I enjoy our lunches very much in Phoenix and I look forward to um, having them. Um, you know, I had hoped to make a trip out to Phoenix already here, but, you know, things have been postponed because of the, the virus. And now we're looking at a lockout that could upset, rip up, delay whatever the regular season. So hope to get out there and look forward to our lunch and, uh, and trying to woo you back onto the best podcast in baseball. Me too, but it's good to be with you. Okay, press stop recording here. And now to Go check the totem score.